Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. It's wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. A beautiful Wednesday once again here in Joburg. And coming to you as we are live, uh, albeit in a time of load shedding and so on. So I hope that everything works here. Uh, we've got a whole lot of different systems that have to kick in when load shedding kicks in. And so hopefully you can hear me and hopefully it's coming through clearly on your side. Great to be with you and to be able to share some thoughts with you on this very special day. Today is Rosh Chodesh. Today is the first day in the month of Adar Rishon, Adar 1, the beginning of two months of Adar leading up to Nisan, which will be the month that follows that. But we're beginning today the 60 days of Adar, the month of Adar Rishon, the first Adar, which is an intercalated and added uh, month or is the second one, the added month. And this is going to be part of our discussion today. How does this all work? Where did it all come from? And why is it that we have this complicated system of the two Adars? And of course, then hopefully by the end of uh, today's show, we'll be able to address some pertinent and practical questions. What happens if you've got a birthday in Adar? What happens if you have a yard site in Adar? How do we celebrate those things? About mitzvah, how do we celebrate those things? How do we uh, work out on which Adar it should actually be if we've got kind of two matching months with very similar days and the only thing that's different about them is we call the one Adar Rishon, first Adar, and the second one we call Adar Sheni or Adar Bet, the second Adar. So let's kick off by saying that actually the invention or the instruction to have two Adars really is part of the mitzvah that was the very first mitzvah given to the Jewish people as we were about to leave Egypt. That first mitzvah is the mitzvah of HaChodesh HaZelachem, the idea of having a calendar and the calendar having months and the months, of course, lining up with the moon. So in other words... Going to a lunar calendar is really, really instructed by that very first mitzvah. This should be the first of your months, and a month, of course, has got to do with the moon, and so everything should be all fine, and uh, we should be left to understand everything. But then comes a kind of a counterpoint or a uh, juncture point where we have to try and see how these things overlap. We're then told that Pesach, which was, of course, and is, of course, in the month of Nisan, has to be in the spring. And that's, of course, in the spring in Israel, the spring in northern countries. So you have this kind of overlap or this intersection of two possibly very, very different instructions. Because if we're going to go according to a lunar month, it stands to reason, since the lunar month is only 29 and a half days long, approximately, that we're going to end up short because our seasons will not line up then with the 12-month system. If we're going to have 12 months, as the calendar does have, we're going to be left short. And it will always be about 11 days that we are short um, once we have completed 12 months of a lunar cycle. So therefore comes the Torah and tells us, God says, we need to make sure that Pesach is in the spring, which is an instruction to 
take into account the solar calendar, the sun, because, of course, the seasons are seasons of the sun, not seasons of the moon. And therefore, we have to overlay these two. We have to make them come together. We have to see how they can intersect and how we can actually work this all out. And so the Torah comes up with the amazing invention of something that is called a leap month. Now, we talk about a leap year, and a leap year, according to the secular kind of calendar, the regular calendar, a leap year is where we are talking about an extra or a, a, a minus day in the month of February. And uh, that is then called the leap year. Well, it's this kind of tiebreaker in order to get our numbers right, in order to get the timing right, and in order to make sure that the seasons all occur in the right place. And so that was invented or instituted into the calendar. Um, and it happens when it happens um, that you have this leap year, which is an extra day. And you understand, in a way, the concept of the leap. We're leaping from one day to the next or missing out a day or adding a day. And therefore, there is this jump and uh, one day kind of disappears or appears on the horizon. When it comes to the Jewish leap year, there's not such a simple leap. Because what we're talking about in the Jewish leap year, and perhaps we need to use a different terminology rather than calling it a leap year, when it comes to the leap year, well, we're talking about a leap year of an entire month. We add in another month, and that's what we have just begun today. An extra month is added into the calendar in order to make sure that Pesach will occur in the spring in Israel. Now, the way that they used to calculate this, the way that this is all worked out, is there is something called the spring equinox. For those of you who are familiar with it, to know what we're talking about, the concept of the spring equinox was an important factor here because it was determined that if the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, of course, occurs um, after or from the 16th of Nisan onwards, then there automatically needed to be a leap year. Why? Because we needed to, sorry, if it occurs after the 16th of Nissan, we're on safe territory. If it was occurring, uh, it, I mixed myself up. If it happened before, it was fine. If it occurs afterwards, we need to intercalate automatically another month. And that month then would see to it that Pesach would then be in the spring. It would be after the spring equinox. And therefore, it would all work out perfectly for this instruction to have Pesach in the spring. So originally, it was something that was calculated by the courts, by the Sanhedrin. They had to work out exactly when the leap years were. Today, we have a much simpler system that, in fact, was instituted when we say today, we're actually going back many centuries to somebody called Hillel II, who in instituted a system of um, the leap years occurring in a regular rhythm, and that was that it was seven times in 19 years. And this is actually what we do live with today. And so it's all worked out. It's all calculated. It's not as though people sit down now and calculate which is going to be the leap year and when are we going to add in another month. This is all worked out for us. It is something that has already quite a long history and will hopefully have one in the time going ahead and forward in our lives as well. Now, get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. 
So if we were just talking about a calendar, so isn't that amazing? We're talking about the structure of the Jewish calendar, of course, today being Rosh Chodesh Adar, the first day in the month of Adar Rishon, of Adar 1. And we're talking about the structure and why it works like this and the way that it is devised and how it works, this idea of a leap year. And as I mentioned before, Torah shies away, actually, from the word leap year. It uses the word Shana Me'uberet, which really means either a pregnant year or a year with something extra. There is something extra within it. And it could be that that extra that's within it is really what we're talking about here. Now, there is something very prophetic, I would say, about the idea of this being called a Shana Me'uberet, a pregnant year or an enlarged year, because it is temporarily, for this year, it is larger than usual. And the way that a, a year is worked out now, um, it would all either have 385 or 384 or 383 days, and that would all depend on how many days there were in the month of Cheshvan and Kislev, which can have uh, 29 days, they can have 30 days each, and therefore you've got those three options. 385, 384, 383 days in a leap year called a pregnant year. But when we think about the concept of pregnancy, I think that it conjures up in our own minds the idea of, of course, expectation. We talk about a person, a woman expecting the expectancy. There is something great that is about to happen. And of course, it is a prelude to um, the month of Nisan, the time of Pesach, and the time of Pesach was really uh, marked as the birth of the Jewish people as a nation. And so there is something very, very important about this Ibur Yor, or this Shana Mu'uberet, as it is referred to, being called a pregnant year. It is um, kind of exhorting us to look at the concept of the pregnancy of the expectancy of the fact that we are preparing for something of the fact that there is about to be a birth of sorts and that birth of course being the wonderful time of Pesach when Nisan will come a couple of months time when we're going to be heralding the arrival of that great and wondrous time when we as a Jewish people became a nation where we were born as a people and everything that went with that. Now we've got to remember that the idea of sorting out this uh, pregnant year or this leap year, as we said before, was something that dates back to the very first commandment that we were given as a Jewish people. It's got a Torah base. It was handled thereafter by the Sanhedrin, by the highest court in the land. And there were several judges who had to sit on this court and decide exactly how it all worked. They took into account, as we said before, the concept of the spring equinox. That was something very important that they took into account. But they also took into account several other factors. And that was if the barley in Israel, for instance, had not yet ripened and the trees were not yet blossoming with seasonal fruit, that too was a sufficient reason to delay Nisan by adding a second month of Adar. So they would look at the factors of nature at the time, um, as well as just the dates. They would look at kind of was the world ready, even in their own judgment, for this to happen from a nature point of view. And they would also consider um, several other uh, non uh, sort of season related factors. And that was if the bridges or the roads 
we're in a state of disrepair. Well, you think about the potholes. If there were um, difficulties, in other words, from the rainy season and roads had been washed away or bridges had been destroyed or anything like that, and that that would impede the uh, travel of pilgrims coming to Yerushalayim for the Chag, for the festival, they would also delay. They would enable everybody to have another month in order to make that preparation. So... <coughs> <clears throat> to a degree, it seems to be that this whole concept of the time when Pesach will occur was not only something that was decreed, Minashamayim, that came from above, but it also had a significant and important um, dimension in Jewish law in empowering the Sanhedrin, in empowering the judges, in empowering the courts to be able to make a determination of exactly when this all should occur. And I think it's a very, very important factor in the way we look at Jewish law in general. And here we're talking about Judaism 101.9, when we think about the idea that not everything in Jewish law actually comes from God Almighty himself. There is a chain of command. There is a process that many of our laws were put through and that had to be determined by human beings. Well, this doesn't diminish their power. It doesn't take away from their strength. On the contrary, we seem to infer from various, various parts of Torah that the idea of the uh, so-called man-made laws, but we're not man-made at all in a Jewish context because we talk about the Sanhedrin as being divinely inspired. We talk about our uh, great sages who determine laws and even our Bote Din, even our uh, uh, Din Torahs and so on, that all of these things have a very, very important godly factor to them. It's not just like sitting in any other court. And it's not just something that is determined by man, but there is this godly dimension. Now, with that comes a tremendous amount of responsibility, of course, on the people who are involved in these things. And we needed to make sure that our judges were fitting judges, that our um, our uh, uh, rabbis who sat, for instance, in the Sanhedrin or in the Bate Din, in the uh, places where they were deciding and deciphering all these laws, that they were of not only of great caliber, but that they were the most uh, religious people around, that they were the most involved, that they knew and they really understood intrinsically what it was that God wanted. And then they had the depth of learning and knowledge to back them up as well. Um, a great, great responsibility, but at the same time, lending us a tremendous amount of let's call it human power, um, or the godliness within humanity um, that had to come to the fore in the determination of all of these important laws and all of these very, very important parts of um, Judaism, of Torah, and our mitzvot per se. Now, we mentioned before that this occurs seven times in 19 years. In fact, if you were to take a 19-year cycle of uh, the calendars and you to look at them alongside each other, you will know, and you possibly do know, and it's interesting to note that in Chai FM, the number 19 occurs as well because we've got 101.9. If you read the one, one nine at the end together, we've got the number 19. So it's 1019. We've got the number 19 there, and the number 19 is significant because when a, from a calendar point of view, 
our dates line up. If we think about a secular date in the regular calendar and a Jewish date, they should line up exactly the same every 19 years. So your birthday, 19 year when you turn 19, should be the same as the day the day you were born. Uh, in other words, the secular date and the Jewish date should line up. They can sometimes be one day out, and that's probably got to do with the months of Cheshvan and of Kislev sometimes having an extra day. But um, usually it will line up that way. And then when you turn 38 and then when you turn 57 and so on, that should all line up. And why? Because it's a 19-year cycle. So that's why the number 19 was there. And they worked out that we needed seven of those in 19 years, seven of these extra months in order to um, fix our leap years and in order to make Pesach always occur as it should day, as it should do in the spring. Now, there is something very, very important to think about when we think about these days and these dates, and that is from a very practical point of view. What would happen for um, a contract, for instance, that you have made? And let's think of, and uh, Torah discusses what happens if you have a rental contract. You've rented a place, and you're renting some place. Not by month, because by month we could always work it out very easily. But what if you take a rental by year? So you say, you know what, I'm going to rent for the next three years. And of course, in uh, one of those three years, maybe there is going to be a leap year and you're going to have an extra month. So are you staying in the apartment in the place for the extra month for free? How does that work? Is that contractually? Is that legal? Is that right? According to our sages, according to our halacha, if the uh, fact was stated just by the year, well, then that is the determination. And there is a benefit then, in fact, to the person who is renting the apartment rather than the owner of the apartment who actually just gets the rental paid per year. And it doesn't matter if it's a 12-year or a 13-year, a 12-month or a 13-month year. What happens if you, however, said that you're going to pay a certain amount per month and it would a total a certain amount per year. So you've got a hundred rand that you're paying per month, or a thousand rand that you're paying per month, and then twelve thousand or twelve hundred that it needs to be paid per year, and that's spelled out in the contract. Well, here, unfortunately, the person renting has got the problem because once you've stated that there is a charge per month, you actually would probably be obligated to pay extra for that 13th month, albeit that the 13th month is also called Adar, Adar 1, Adar 2. And of course, yes, you're right, uh, we usually would go in this country, for instance, by a secular date. But what happens if you're living in Israel or if you decided that both of you were uh, religiously observant and you wanted to go by the Jewish calendar, the Jewish dates, this is in fact what would happen. Now also, let's think about what happens if you've got a birthday that occurs in the month of Adar. Now you're born, if you're born, and if any of these dates occur um, in a leap year, well, that's quite easy to determine because then it's going to be married to that month. So what I mean, if uh, your birthday is on the fifth day of Adar 1 in a leap year, whenever Adar 1 comes around again, that is definitely your birthday. So there's no question about it in a leap year. In a regular year, it'll just revert to being Adar, it doesn't matter that it's not one and it's not two, it is just Adar, so that's quite easy. What happens, however, if you're, if it's the other way around? You're born in a regular year, you're not born in a leap year. Now, when is your birthday in a leap year? Is it in the first Adar or is it in the second Adar? 
And here we come to having to determine which actually is the added month. And here there is a whole discussion um, by our sages in the Talmud. There are those who say that, in fact, the first one is the added month. And uh, they base themselves probably primarily on the fact that Purim only occurs in the second month. It doesn't occur in the first month. In the first month when Purim would occur, we call it Purim Katan, minor Purim, little Purim. We do not read the Megillah. We don't celebrate Purim. That's only going to come up in the middle of the next month, not in the middle of this one. So which is the added month? Is it the first one? Is it the second one? Just as loudly as they say that the first one is the one that is added, there are those who say that, no, in fact, it is the second one that's added. And the only reason why we make Purim in the second month is because there needs to be a a comparison. There needs to be a link between one Gula and the other, one redemption and the other. The redemption of Purim needs to lead directly to the redemption of Pesach. And so there are those who determine and say that the first month is extra and there are those who are determined and say and goes back to Talmudic times that the second one is the one that is extra so when it comes to a birthday there's some good news for you you have two birthdays in a leap year you celebrate the one according to the rabbis who say that it's the first month that is the essential one and you celebrate the second one in the second month according to those who say that it is the first one that is the added month so there's some good news two birthdays in a year, um, and we could probably all live with that, and especially if you get lots of presents and you have parties and so on. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Well, we're not talking about living like a boss, but living like a Jew. And when we think about living like a Jew, one of the things we have to take into account, of course, is that today is Rosh Chodesh, and we've just entered the two months of Adar, the beginning of a great season, a great time for the Jewish people, thinking about structuring the seasons, as we have mentioned before. Now, when we think about which is the added month and which is the additional month, which is the one that is regular, as we said before, there are those who say it's the first one, there are those who say it's the second. And so one would also have this issue if it came to a yard site, if somebody passed away, um, a parent and so on that you need to observe a yard site for in the month of Adar in a regular year. Well, there is a debate about when you uh, commemorate the yard site in a leap year. So when would you do it if it came out now? In uh, Would it be in Adar 1 or Adar 2? And there are various different opinions. There are those who say that it's definitely the first month. There are those who say it's definitely the second month. And there are some who say, well, in order that uh, we make sure we cover all our bases, we keep them both. And we keep both um, yard sites. Um, yes, it's a little more difficult and a little bit um, not that exciting to have to observe two yard sites. But there are those who say that it must be the first one because as soon as the mitzvah comes to hand and you have the opportunity to do that mitzvah, you should do it. And so it's obviously the first one. But those who say that the second is a real month of Adar and the first one is the intercalated month, we want to make sure that we do it right. And so one needs to ask this question to your own particular rabbi because there may be even in a city like Joburg, there may be different observances in different shuls, in different communities, and one has to conform to the observance of the community of the shul where you daven. So make sure that um, you do ask that kind of a question directly to uh, your own personal uh, rabbi of your community as to which your site date you actually would keep. 
If we think about a bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah, you have the strange uh, concept, which is mentioned in halacha, that because of the uh, two months of Adar, it is possible that a boy who is born later would celebrate his bar mitzvah earlier. The concept of um, the two Adars may seem to change up um, the ages almost of uh, young men when they celebrate their bar mitzvahs, but uh, you can go home and think about that for a bit of homework. Think about how that would all work and how it would be that somebody born before somebody else, when he has a trick or quiz question that you could ask at your Shabbos table perhaps, how is it possible and then work out the answer. And How is it possible that somebody who is younger would celebrate their bar, their bar mitzvah, in other words the date of their 13th birthday will come before someone who is actually older than them. Think about it. Try and come up with it. But it's all got to do with these double months of Adar. We'll be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Now, Jewish law tells us that when the month of Adar arrives, Mishenichnas Adar, Mar Bim Basimcha, when the month of Adar arrives, we increase in joy. Yes, people should be joyous from today in an added fashion. We've always got to be joyous. The mark of a Jew has to be that we are positive, that we are happy, that we're besimcha, that we celebrate simchas, that we enjoy them, that we understand the concept of serving God with joy. And when the month of Adar comes in, we need to increase in that joy. Now think about how important it is to increase in that joy in a year in which there are two Adars. So we kind of get a double dose of joy during this year. The month of Adar 1 and the month of Adar Bet, Adar Shani, come together to give us a huge amount of joyous times of positive energy that filters through uh, not only at this time, but throughout this whole year. So that in itself is a very, very positive spin for us all to think about in this uh, month of Adar and in the month of Adar that follows the double dose of joy. But there's something very important that was also added here in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe where he said that when we think about the uh, time of two Adars, when there are two Adars, we have 60 days. Now, the number 60 occurs in our rules of Kashrut, which we were talking about, referred to last week, where we have rules of Kashrut that have to do with something called Batel Bashishim, when something is nullified in 60. Now, that's what's going to be applied if you're trying to nullify, if a little bit of something not kosher or something meat falls into milk and so on, that we're trying to work out the ratio of nullification. When will it become negligible? And there is the concept of bottle Bashishim, nullified in 60. The number that they determined was 60. 60 is the important number for us to be able to determine when something will become nullified, when it will no longer be uh, be uh, be relevant and won't make any impression. Well, when we think about the number of 60, we've got a number 60 that has got to do with Simcha. It nullifies everything negative. It nullifies everything that is possibly negative that could come up in our lives will be nullified in this year because it is nullified in 60. There is not the possibility that anything could, negative could stand up against the double dose 
of 60 times as much to nullify anything negative that could occur in our lives. So a very, very beautiful point to end off on, this idea of the double adar, a double dose of simcha, but actually nullifying anything of a negative nature that could be in our lives or that could be in in front of us and certainly the stuff that's gone behind us um, over the past couple of years. We know that we're in a positive frame of mind and we've got this positive energy and we're thinking about this double dose of Simcha that we now take on board, looking forward to the rebirth of the Jewish people in the month of Nisan. We look forward to a great and wonderful time ahead of Simcha and then Simcha on top of that, double Simcha's double joy. We look forward to that with great, great, great enthusiasm. And we hope and pray that you'll have a great rest of the week, a beautiful Shabbat up ahead. And we look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week on another exciting episode of Judaism 101.9.